Father, we just thank you for what you're teaching us through the book of Hebrews. And as we come to this lesson today uh, that involves our perseverance, uh, Lord, that's kind of a scary thought that your word says if, that if we don't persevere to the end, that we're not saved, that we won't make it in, into your kingdom. And, and so, Lord, we want to learn about perseverance today. It's a serious subject. And so I just ask today that you be our teacher, that you open up this text and and Lord, that uh, through this text, we see Jesus Christ and his glory and, and really understand what he's done for us, Lord, and, and understand the security in, in uh, the cross and, and in, in the finality of the cross. So, Lord, I ask you to teach us these great truths, and I ask you to do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Our title of our message today is Not for Quitters. And... Uh, let me start by reading you a quote uh, from Calvin Coolidge about perseverance. And listen to what he said. He says, nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing, he says, nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Then he says, genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb, he says. Education will not. He says, the world is full of educated derelicts. Uh, persistence, he goes on and then he says, persistence and determination alone are omnipotent, all powerful. Persistence and, and uh, uh, persistence and determination are omnipotent. And then he says, the slogan press on has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. So Calvin Coolidge believed in perseverance and he believed in persistence and and there's this biblical call to perseverance and persistence. I mean, the, world, the world's challenges aren't going to be solved by quitters. Nobody solves a problem by quitting. And the, the Bible is clear that Christianity is not for quitters. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that if you do quit, if you don't make it to the end, you're not saved. So perseverance in the faith is a qualification for salvation. Now, that's, that's the Bible that says that, and we'll see that in verse number 6 today when we get there. Now, that can be a really scary thought, or it can be a really comforting thought, depending on your theology. And if you want to have the correct theology, you want to listen to the, this entire message on, on perseverance. And, and we're going to decide which it is. Is it a comforting thought, this idea of perseverance? Or is it, a, or is it a, uh, a very scary thought? So let's go to chapter 3, verse number 1 in the book of Hebrews. Let me get there for a minute, in a minute. So go with me to chapter 1, verse number 3, and we'll pick up there. And we'll get into this very important subject when we get down to verse number 6. But let's, let's, let's set the context here. He says, therefore, holy brethren... Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. Now, who's he speaking to here? Who, who is this audience? Who's this audience? The holy brethren. Who are the holy? Our sistren, if you want to say that. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Who's his audience? The church. He's speaking to the church. Now, when you speak to the church, you assume that you're speaking to holy brethren. I mean, how many of y'all are holy? Raise your hand, you're holy. If you're, not, if you're not born again, you're not holy, but if you're born again, you're holy. 
You've been made a saint. That word, that, we've seen that word over and over again in the Bible. It's the Greek word hagios. It means saintly. It means set apart. It means to sanctify. You've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ if you're a born-again believer. So you are a holy brother or a holy sister in Christ if you've been born again. But now when Paul's writing this letter, did everybody that read this letter, or did everyone who read this letter, were they believers? Not necessarily. Now he is speaking to believers, but the audience includes believers and non-believers. Keep that in mind as we go on through the rest of this text. So he's assuming here that you're a holy brother or sister in Christ. And listen to what he says. Partakers of the heavenly calling. I mean, if I've been born again, I'm partaker of the heavenly calling. I, I've been called out of darkness. I've been, I've been uh, called to be born from above and not below. And so I have a heavenly calling. In, first, in John 1 verse 12, it says, To as many as received Christ, to them he gave the power to become sons and daughters of God. That's your heavenly calling. If you've been called by Jesus Christ into his kingdom, then you've been given the power to become a son and daughter of God. So you're partakers of the heavenly calling. He says, therefore, since you're the partakers of the heavenly calling, since you are the holy brethren, here's what you need to consider. Now the word consider there is the word for an, that an astronomer uses, or in that day the astronomers used for gazing at the stars. In other words, you're to put your gaze on who? On Jesus Christ. If you're truly a holy brother or sister in Christ, then where should your gaze be? Who should you be looking at all the time? You should be looking upon Christ. You should set your mind on things above and not on things below. He says, therefore, uh, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle I mean, gaze upon the apostle, the apostle, the greatest apostle of all, the greatest one sent from God, the apostle and high priest of our confession. What's our confession? Well, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that in the Lord Jesus and that God has raised him from the dead, then you are saved. That's your confession. So you're to, you, you're to gaze upon the apostle and high priest of our confession who is none other than Jesus Christ. Christ. See, here was the problem with the Jews at this time, the Jewish Christians. Where was their citizenship? Where did they see their citizenship? They saw it as a, as a Jew, as an Israeli. They saw themselves as Israelites more than they saw themselves as children of God. And so Paul's trying to correct that. He says, don't gaze upon the law. Don't gaze upon the tabernacle. Don't gaze upon Moses. You need to be gazing upon Jesus Christ because your citizenship has changed. Remember what he said in chapter 3 of Philippians. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. He says in Ephesians 2, he says, we've been raised into heavenly places. And so we're to set our mind on heavenly things and not on things of this earth. And, and in the heavens, who are we setting our mind upon? Who are we setting our gaze upon? We're setting it upon none other than Jesus Christ. So we're to consider Jesus Christ. We're to ponder, we're to gaze upon him, the apostle and high priest uh, of our faith. And, and, and the Jews were falling back. They were falling back in, 
to temple worship and back into the sacrificial system. And so Paul, or the author, if you don't believe it's Paul, whoever the author is, was trying to correct that. You know, you remember what Jesus said? He said, he said remember Lot's wife. What, what did he mean by that? Don't ever look back. You're always to look forward. You're always to look above. You're always to gaze upon Jesus Christ. There's this great danger in looking back. You know, for we've, we haven't been Jews, so we don't have the danger of falling back into Judaism, but it's real easy for us to fall back into the world, isn't it? And what's the Bible say about those that fall about back into the world? It says, if, if, you, if you love the world, and the things of the world, he's, John says in 1 John chapter 2, don't love the world and the things of the world because if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. You can't be saved and love the world. Now we're talking about the world system, the world cosmos. Of course we love this world that God has given us, this earth that we live in. But this system we don't love because who rules this system? Satan rules this system. And, and, it seems, and, and it's full of traps and it seems very attractive. And so there's times when we want to look back. We get, things get tough as a, being a Christian sometimes. And we want to look back and we want to say, man, I'm going to go back to the world. But there's this big danger in going back to the world because what happened to Lot's wife? She turned to salt. What happens if you go back into the world? Well, if you go back in the world, you're not saved. And so there's this real danger. The Jews had a much more subtle trap. They were going back into something that seemed really good, something that God had given them. He had given them the law. He had given them the temple. He had given them the sacrificial system. And they were looking back to that for their salvation. And in the process, they were losing their salvation. And so that's the warning there. Now, you certainly can see why they thought Moses was great and why they would look at Moses as, as the greatest man who ever lived because look at the next verse, verse number 2. It says, it's speaking of Jesus, it said, who was faithful to him, to the Father, who appointed him, Jesus, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. You know, Moses was in some ways like Jesus Christ. He was appointed as an apostle to God's people, wasn't he? He was sent as Jesus is the apostle and the prophet. Moses was a prophet and a apostle, and he was sent to God's people. He was, he was a, you know, you talk about a guy who, who, who God loved and who God anointed, and who God used, and whom God guided. Man, there's none other than, greater than Moses in that respect. You remember when Moses was born, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, there was something about him when his parents saw him that they knew he was a beautiful child. Now, my parents looked at me and said the same thing, but this is different. They really didn't say that. I think they went, ugh. <laughs> but anyway... Moses was a beautiful child because they saw a glow in him. They saw something special about him. They knew from the time of his birth that he had been anointed by God to save Israel. And so what did they do? What was the decree at that time that any child, male child, was to be killed, to be thrown into the Nile? And so what did they do? Because they saw that he was going to be the deliverer of Israel, they hid Moses. And they hid him for like 30 days, and then what did they do? They put him in a basket, and they sent him down the Nile River, and they knew exactly where that basket was going to land. It was going to land if they, they, they might have put a rudder on it. I don't know how they did it. But it landed just a little ways down the stream at Pharaoh's, down the Nile River, at Pharaoh's daughter's place, who Jacobed, Moses' mother, just happened to work for. 
And so, uh, so Pharaoh's daughter took Moses in, and Jochebed raised Moses. His mother got to raise him. But then he was educated in the best schools of Egypt, and, and life was really good for Moses, and God's hand was upon Moses. And then what happened? Moses decided he was going to be the deliverer of Israel. He had been appointed to be the deliverer of Israel, so he killed a, a, an Egyptian soldier. He found out then it, it was, the timing was wrong, and that he, he, there was a price on his head, and so he fled. He fled Egypt, and he went down to Midian. Well, God's hand was still on him in Midian, wasn't it? Because it was down in Midian that he met his wife. He met his wife, and he had his children. And guess who else he met down in Midian? He met the Lord in the burning bush. And the Lord gave him that great commission, that almost impossible commission, definitely impossible without God, that he was to deliver the people of Israel and take them into the promised land. And then Moses had a real fun time, didn't he? He got 40 years of wandering in the wilderness with the children of Israel, and he got right to the edge of the promised land. But in those 40 years, he wrote what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. I mean, you talk about a man who was anointed by God. God called him the most humble and faithful man on earth. The most humble and faithful man on earth. On earth. You know, Moses, the Bible tells us that Moses talked to God as a friend talks to a friend. Can you imagine that? And when Moses died, you know who presided over Moses' funeral? God himself presided over his funeral. I mean, who could be greater than Moses? Who could be greater than Moses? Jesus Christ. And let me show you why. Just go to the next, next few verses there, verses 3 and 4. For this one, Jesus Christ, has been counted worthy of infinitely more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Who's he referring to? Who's the God he's referring to right here? Who's the God who built all things? Jesus Christ built all things. All things were made by him, through him, and for him. I mean, the Jews, the Jews were certain that Moses was the primary builder of the nation of Israel. But here's the question the author raises, who built Moses? Who built, where did Moses come from? He came from Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the builder of all things, that's who he came from. And you know, actually, who built the nation of Israel? Did Moses build the nation of Israel? No. How was the nation of Israel built? Abraham was created by Jesus Christ. Guess who called Abraham to leave the land of Chaldea? None other than Jesus Christ. Guess who nurtured Abraham throughout those years he lived? Him and Sarah running here to and fro, getting themselves into all sorts of trouble. Who saved them? Jesus Christ. Who gave them a child named Isaac in their old age when it was impossible for them to have children? Who gave them that child? Jesus Christ. And that child's name was Isaac, and from Isaac came Jacob, that nice old guy Jacob, and he had 12 sons who became the tribes of Israel. So who made the nation of Israel? Not Moses. Jesus Christ made the nation of Israel. 
I mean, it was Jesus Christ who created Moses and called Moses to deliver the nation of Israel. But now the author does this. He lifts up Jesus without diminishing the importance of Moses. He's not wanting to diminish the importance of Moses. Moses was a very important man. He doesn't say Moses was worthless and that he was a worm in the sight of the Lord. No, Moses was great. He was a great man. Look at the next verse. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house. What was his house? What was Moses' house? Israel was his house. You could say his body. He was faithful with his body. You know, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about his house. He's talking about the house of Israel. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. What did Jesus say about servants? If you want to be great, then you're to be a servant. And no one served the people more than Moses did. I mean, if I was Moses, I would have walked away from those people a thousand times. He turned his cheeks so many times. I mean, of course, you know, he had an advantage because when they rebelled against him, the earth opened up and swallowed them up. So, I mean, he didn't have to get mad. God would get mad for him and, and just wipe, zap those people and wipe them out. But he was faithful, wasn't he? He was faithful to that house of Israel, those, those, those bunch of stiff-necked Israelites, Jews. He was faithful to them. Moses he was faithful in all his house as a servant for, which, for, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. Now, what's the testimony of those things? What's the witness? That's the word witness. What's the word? It means witness. What is it, what, how was he a witness to those things which would be spoken of afterward? What are the things that would be spoken of afterward? He's talking about the gospel. Moses was a witness to the gospel. How was Moses a witness to a go, the gospel? How was he a witness to the gospel? Because he wrote the Pentateuch, and the Pentateuch is full of prophecies about the coming Messiah, about the coming of Jesus Christ. And so he, he wrote the Pentateuch. What else did Moses get? What was the most important thing that Moses gave the Israelites? The law. Is the law important to us? You better believe the law is important to us. The law is a tutor that brings us to Jesus Christ. Moses gave us the tutor. And the law is good. The law is perfect. I mean, it was ministered to by angels, but Moses is the one who gave us that. But Jesus, Jesus, is the one who built Moses. Jesus is the one who gave Moses the law that Moses gave to the children of Israel. Jesus is the one who spoke the Pentateuch through Moses. Jesus isn't just son over, over the house of Israel. He's son over all creation. He's son over the house of God. And so that's what he says in the next verse. Look at verse number six. But Christ as a son over his own house. He's speaking of the house of God. Whose house we are. I'm going to stop right there. We're not going to get the rest of that. I'm going to leave that alone. Because we're going to get in deep trouble if we go any further. We'll just say, but Christ as son over his own house. Whose house we are. And that's, Paul could have stopped right there. He could have stopped right there. We're his house. If, how many of you people are part of the house of God? Y'all want to raise your hand on this regardless. How many of you people are part of the house of God? Okay, all of you. We're part of the house of God. But then he messes this whole thing up. If. Don't you hate those ifs? If we hold fast the confidence 
Well, man, you really messes it up now. And the rejoicing. You can't just hold fast. You got to hold fast rejoicing. How for how long? Of the hope firm, not ever letting go. For how long? To the end. What's the end? The end is when you die or when Christ comes back. So if you're at your deathbed and you're not smiling, you're going to hell. <laughs> so if you've known any people that weren't smiling when they died, they're in hell. Because it says here you've got to be rejoicing in the end. I don't care how much pain you're in. I don't care how much suffering you're going through. You better be rejoicing. Be saying hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, maybe it's not to that extreme, but in your heart, you must be rejoicing in the end if you're saved. Wow. Now, let's, let's go back and look at this verse. And we, this, is, well, this is all we got is this verse. I could do like Paul does in his books, and I can say in conclusion. But you know when I say in conclusion, we got a long ways to go. So, In conclusion... In conclusion, let's go back to that first part of the verse. He says, but Christ as son over his own house, whose house we are. What house is he talking about there? Where does Christ live now? Where does he live? He lives in you and me. He lives in his church. So the house that he's speaking of here is his church. He's speaking of the house of God, the tabernacle in which he dwells. The ecclesia, those of us who have been the body, the assembly, this is an assembly today of the church. We're an assembly of those who have been called out of darkness and into his light. The assembly of those who have been born again. I mean, if you're here today, you're born again or you're lost. If you're lost, we're going to do our best to get you saved. But, but, it, but most of us here are born again. We're part of his house. And we are his house. If. We hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope to the very end. Now, you can reverse that, and let me tell you what that says there. It says that if you don't hold fast to the hope to the end, you are not part of his house. Did you catch that? I'm serious. This is serious stuff. This isn't hyperbole here. If you don't hold fast to the hope, to the end, rejoicing, then you are not part of the house of God. And you will find yourself when you die at the great white throne judgment seat. And you'll see the Lord before he sentences you to eternal hell. That's scary stuff. Remember I said this can be scary or it can be very comforting. What is the hope? What's the hope? The hope's the gospel, right? The hope is your salvation. And you know what? I, it, whenever I think of my hope, you know what I think of? I think of a person. I think of Jesus Christ. Because I have no salvation. There is no gospel without Jesus Christ. So my ultimate hope is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, when I say I have a hope, is that wishful thinking? How many of you wish that there was a Jesus Christ? That's not what he's talking about when he talks about hope here. He talks about hope with confidence. Confidence. You have no hope if you have no confidence in your hope. I mean, the author of Hebrews tells us in 
chapter 11, he says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Man, I have evidence that Jesus Christ lives in me. If you had known me before I was saved, you would have evidence too. If I'd known you before I, you were saved, I would have lots of evidence. See, I have evidence. I know that I know that I know that Jesus Christ lives in me. I walk with him and I talk with him. He spanks me. Does he spank you? If, you, if he doesn't, you, the Bible says you're not his child. I mean, I've got evidence all the time that Jesus Christ is part, part of my life. I mean, we know that we know that we know that Jesus Christ lives in us. But here's where this verse causes a lot of problems. That if, if, lots of problems. This becomes one of the favorite verses of the Armenians. How many Armenians do we have in here? Well, you might be an Armenian and not know it. I'm going to tell you what an Armenian is. An Armenian is someone who believes in, in all of choice. It's all about choice. I'm, I, I'm in the middle here. Between Calvinism and Arminianism, you don't know where I land. I believe you do have a choice, and I do, I do believe God helps you make that choice. And he knows the choice you're going to make before the foundation of the world, and so he chooses you in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, with that said, let me go on with this. An Armenian believes that you make a choice, and because you make a choice, you can make a choice to make another choice. In other words, you, can, you, you, choose, to become a, you choose to be saved, and you can choose to walk away if you want to. They don't believe in eternal security. They believe you can lose your salvation. It's a choice. If you want to walk away at any time, you can walk away. You can walk away because you do have choice. But God's not going to let you walk away if you're his child. He's going to use the belt and get you back in line. You're not going to walk away. Now, that's what I believe, and you all already know I believe in eternal security. But, but uh, we're going to try to look at this from both sides sides here so they believe you can walk away and they've got verses to back that up and they got situations in the bible that seem to back that up and let's look at a few of those we, we don't want to you don't want to go in this blindly remember wednesday night and i'm not going to exegete this passage because because uh we went over it wednesday night and if you're you're struggling with this idea of eternal security i suggest you see david after the service actually you don't even have to do that you can go online and listen to wednesday night's message but but there's a passage that we looked at Wednesday night that goes hand in hand with this passage in Hebrews it's in Colossians chapter 1 go back towards Matthew back towards the beginning of the New Testament and find Colossians and go to chapter 1 and let's look at this passage for a minute Colossians chapter 1 down in verse number 21 Begin, we'll begin there. The verse I want to look at is in 23, but we've got to set a little bit of the context here. It says, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind. I want you to remember that. Alienated and enemies. You know how, who you are if you are not saved? You are alienated from God and you are an enemy of God. Man, I would choose better enemies than God. I don't think I can beat, defeat God. So when you're not saved, you are an enemy of God. You are alienated from the blessings of God. 
Now you might be blessed in the sense of the worldly things that, that, that this world offers, the material things, but you're alienated from the blessings of God. Yet, I love those yets, yet now he has reconciled you. You were alienated by your, in your mind by your wicked works, yet now he has reconciled you. In the, how did he do it? By your good works? No. In the body of his flesh through death to present you. What does his body do for you? The death on the cross do for you? It makes you blameless and holy and above reproach in his sight. For, for how long? As long as you do good? No. Forever. Forever. When you look upon that cross and you get born again, you are, at that point, you are holy and blameless and above reproach. I don't care what you do. You can go out tonight and you can do cocaine and get rip-roaring drunk and you can chase women, you're going to get spanked. But you're still holy. You're still blameless. And you're still above reproach. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute because, see, the Armenian would say, boy, you start going back to that, you're, you're, you're going to lose your salvation. But we don't believe in that, and I'm going to show you why. All right. He says, if indeed, uh-oh, you continue in the faith granted and steadfast. There's the if. And are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached in every creature under heaven since of which I, Paul, became a minister. So there's an if there. There's a condition there. Now, I addressed that condition Wednesday night, and I'm going to address it again here in a minute. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave it. I'm not going to do them both, or we'd be here all afternoon. But, but uh, we'll just leave it to say there are verses that there are strong, or uh, uh, they give you the indication, a strong indication that you can lose your salvation because there's a condition there. Now, this condition is almost the same as the one in Hebrews, so hang on to that for a minute. But you know what Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13? He says, he who endures to the end will be saved. He who endures to the end will be saved. What is that? Let's reverse that. He who doesn't endure to the end will not be saved. Now then the Armenians, what they do, they throw out all sorts of characters in the Bible that seem to have lost their salvation. Ananias and Sapphira. You know, man, God struck them down dead because they withheld some of their goods. And they lied. It really because they lied to the Holy Spirit. It wasn't because they withheld their goods. They lied to the Holy Spirit. He struck them down dead. And the Armenians would say they lost their salvation. And God just struck them down dead. You know, I don't believe that at all about Ananias and Sapphira. I th I, I, they were struck down dead, and if they were saved, they went in right into the presence of God. If they were not saved, they went straight into Hades. And then later, they'll go into hell. That's what I believe. But they say they lost their salvation. What about uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus? Paul says they, their faith was shipwrecked. They lost, they, in other words, their faith crashed on the rocks and it wasn't any good. And so they lost their salvation, it might seem. I would say again, they never had it. Then what about uh, uh, Demas, who l left the faith for this present world, the Bible tells us. 
So there's plenty of characters there that seem to maybe have lost their salvation. And they'll go to the, the Armenian will go to those characters and say, look, see, you can lose your salvation. And they can point to all sorts of people. I can point to you all sorts of people who have come to this church and been part of this church and seem to have been saved and baptized. And then all of a sudden they go back into the world and they, they quit coming to church and they deny Christ and, and they don't want anything else to do with Christ. And a lot of people would say they lost their salvation. Well, there's another camp of evangelicals and, and this is made up of the Calvinists and Reformers. And there's some things about Reformed theology I don't like. There's some things about, about uh, Calvinism I don't like. So I'm not trying to advocate those two. You know what? I'm a biblical person. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. I'm not going to be caught into one of these camps on one extreme or the other. Arminian or Calvinism or Reformed or not Reformed. I mean, there is some great things about Reformed theology and Calvinism. There is some good things about Arminianism. Because I do believe in choice, that you have choice. But there are a strong group of evangelicals who believe you can't lose your salvation. And let me say this. If I was to go through and give you every reference for references where you could lose your salvation and you couldn't lose your salvation, the ones where you couldn't lose your salvation would be 100 to 1 against the ones who say you can. you got to really reach to find the ones that say you can. You don't have to reach anywhere to find the ones that you say you can't because the Bible's full of them. All the metaphors are full of them. We'll look at a metaphor when we conclude here in a minute. But let's look at a few of them. Just, just give you a couple of strong examples. Go with me to 1 Peter. Go back past Hebrews towards Revelation, towards the end of the Bible. And you'll find Hebrew, James, and then 1 Peter. And listen to this verse. You know, you, want, you ever get discouraged or thinking, man, I've lost it? Listen to this verse right here, or this passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us. Do you understand what that means? He's born you again. He's given you new life. He's given you new birth. He's begotten you into his kingdom. He's given you a heavenly calling. Now here's where I struggle. And again, I, all of you know I believe in eternal security. Does he un, is there any place in the Bible where it says you can be unbegotten? No. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You can't be unbegotten. You can't be unborn again. You can walk away from the church. You can walk away from Jesus Christ, but if he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, it'd be pretty stupid to choose you if you were going to walk away. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows everything that's going to happen in the future. He knows those who are going to stick with him. He knows those who aren't. And he's not going to begot you if you're going to walk away. He might get you taste of the heavenly calling, but he's not going to give you the heavenly calling unless he knows you're going to make it to the very end. He's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible. What's incorruptible mean? It can't be corrupted. You can't corrupt it. An undefiled that does not fade away. Where is it reserved? It's reserved in whether you keep it or not. No, it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept. That's a passive verb. Do you keep yourself as, as part of the church? No, you're kept by God. So God, if you don't make it, God fails. You don't fail. You're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, in the end. 
rejoicing. You're going to make it to the very end. Amen? Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I love this verse right here. It's a song in the Baptist hymnal. I, I, I love it. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For, I, for this reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I, believe, I have believed in. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed him until the end. Who keeps it? Do you keep it? He keeps it till the end. And all you got to do, you know, you want to go to one passage and just read the whole passage. Read Romans chapter 8. I mean, just read Romans chapter 8. Go back towards Matthew. I mean, we're not going to read the whole thing today, but let me look at a few verses there. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. I know whom I have believed in, and he is able to keep that which I have committed to him till the end. And listen to what it says in verse 38. Just add that to it. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principality. That means the devil can't chase you away from God nor things present, nor things to come, nothing, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, that's you included, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're in Jesus Christ our Lord, you are saved forever. Amen? So who's right? The Armenian or the Calvinist? Don't fall into those camps. Somebody ain't gave you the right answer. God's right. And the Bible's right. That's who's right. I am absolutely sure that you can't lose your salvation. Guess what? I would have lost mine a hundred times. If I could have lost it. I would have walked away from this stuff a long time ago. If he didn't have his rod and staff to drive me back. And you would walk away too. The devil can make things so hard on you, you would walk away. Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever come to a point, you don't have to raise your hand here. As a Christian where you sometimes hate God. You know that's what Luther said. Somebody came up to Luther. I mean Luther was a pretty great Christian. Said Luther, I wish I loved the Lord like you love the Lord. You know what Luther said? Love the Lord. More often, sometimes, more often than not, I hate the Lord. Man, maybe you're not there yet. But God can put you in circumstances where you know He's trying you, and you know He's got His hand on you, and things are difficult, and, and you say, Lord, enough is enough. And you want to just walk away. And you would walk away if He didn't keep you. But he's the one who keeps you. you. Dare him on that. If you think you, you, he, you, nothing can keep you from walking away, you say, I dare you, Lord, to get, I dare you. See, if I walk away, I'll never walk. I hear people tell me that. I'll never walk away from the Lord. Buddy, whoa. You're asking for some deep trouble. I mean, just look at the verse that we're looking at. Go back to Hebrews Chapter 3. And just look at the tenses there. You'll see where, how, if just a little bit of common sense here, you'll see 
that this isn't what this verse is saying at all. He says in verse number six, and picking up in the condition, if we hold fast, we are, or let's go back. He says, but Christ as son over his own house, whose house we are. Does he say whose house we will be? He says whose house we are. So you understand how the condition works? We are his house if we hold fast the confidence, the, the rejoicing and hope firm to the end. In other words, what he's saying there, he's not saying we will be part of the house of God if we hold fast. He's saying we are if we hold fast. Holding fast doesn't save us. Holding fast is an indicator that we're saved. Do you see the difference? That's what he's saying there. It's just common sense. Well, why the if condition? Paul, why would you mess us all up with that and cause all sorts of theological divides? Why would you do that? If I had Paul in here right now, I'd say, Paul, take the if out of there. Do it right, reword that a little bit differently. No, God wants that there to scare the socks off of you if you're not saved. He wants that condition there, that if there. Because remember, Paul was writing this to the Jews and they called themselves Christians. And some of them were saved and some of them weren't saved. And, 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 and they were going back into the temple worship and they were saying that, that what Christ had done on the cross wasn't enough. And they were going back to the sacrificial system and making sacrifices. And what were they doing? They were falling from grace. They were trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that's why you have the condition there. If you rejoice and remain in the hope till the end. What's the hope? Jesus Christ, the gospel. If you put your hope in something else, then you really aren't part of the house of God. That's why you have the condition there. This is what some theologians call, and, and there's debates over this. I don't, I don't want to bore you with the Greek syntax, but this is what some Greek scholars call the first-class condition. And, and all that means is that the, you that the premise is assumed to be true. I mean, you, you assume that the premise is true. You assume that you are going to hold fast in the confidence and rejoicing in the hope firm to the end. And if you're part of the house of God, you will. Let me give you another example of a first-class condition. Go back to Romans chapter 8. And, and this, one, this one is a little clearer there, but go back to Romans chapter 8. One of my favorite verses, verse number 31. What then shall we say to these things? Uh-oh. If, now we don't have a problem with this one. We'll roll right through this one. If God is for us, who can be against us? If, hallelujah. If God is for us, see, under, you, see how that's, you see how that premise is assumed to be true? How many of you in this room, I want you to raise your hand. If you don't raise your hand, now you, you, you're going to be embarrassed. You got to say yes to this. You might as well raise your hand before I say it. <laughs> How many of you in this room believe that God is for us? Say amen. amen. God is for us. Why the condition? What's a first class condition? We assume it to be true. Why do we assume it to be true? Because we're born again believers. But do you remember the verse I told you to pay attention to back in in Colossians chapter 1, what does it say about those who are not born again? Is God for them? No, they're alienated from God. They're enemies of God. So there is a condition there. See, we roll right over this as, 
as if it's true, and it is true for us because we're born again. But you see what a first-class condition looks like? That's a good, really good example, and that's what this is right here. Paul's not saying that you've got to endure to the end in order to be saved. Where are you putting the works on if, you, if you're saying you've got to do that? You're putting it on yourself, and you're adding to the work of the cross. And if you add to the work of the cross, you nullify the cross. You don't want to nullify the cross. Well, Pastor, man, you, you've spent a lot of time on this eternal security thing. I mean, does it really matter that much? You know, Chuck Smith, who I, I don't follow any man, but Chuck Smith founded Calvary Chapel, died recently. I, man, I could listen to Chuck Smith tapes the rest of my life, and I agree with 99.9% of everything he says. So I'm, I, I add that before I say what I'm about to say. He says it doesn't matter. And those of you that are going through the Calvary Distinctives will see this in, in, at some point in the Calvary Distinctives. He said that it doesn't matter. Let me explain to you why. Well, if you believe, let, let's use an example. Let's say John here has been part of this church, and he's a great guy. How many of you think John's a Christian? Raise your hand again. Everybody. How many knows do I have? <laughs> no, we think John's a Christian, right? But John walks away from the church and he goes out and he goes back into the world and he rejects Christ and he doesn't want to have anything to do with us or anything to do with Christ the rest of his life. Well, you know what the Arminian would say? He would say he lost his salvation. Now, John ends up in hell in this story. So the Armenian would say he lost his salvation. You know what I would say? He fooled us. He never had it. What, where does he end up, both cases? In hell. You're not going there, John. You see, it, to, it doesn't matter in the end in that sense. Did that make sense, the example? I see some people kind of puzzled. But in, yeah, we need to pray after church so he doesn't fall away. But see, I disagree with that. I believe it matters greatly whether you believe in eternal security. It matters greatly. I think sometimes it's a matter, an issue of salvation itself. I worry about people that say you can lose your salvation. And I'm going to explain to you why here in just a minute. If you're here, we don't want to break fellowship with you. You choose to, you won't stay wrong, you can stay wrong when this is over. But let me show you why it's dangerous. And I, I believe there are people who believe you can lose your salvation that are certainly that are saved. But, but there's a danger, a real danger. Those who believe that you can lose your salvation tend to be legalists. I can tell you that right now. In other words, they, they have structured the law like this. The law is don't drink, don't smoke, don't fool around, don't fall into drugs, pornography, those kind of things. As long as you don't do that, you're saved. Okay? And you're, you haven't lost your salvation. But they miss some of the weightier issues of the law like covetousness and gossip. Man, if, if falling into sin 
meant losing my salvation, I'm losing it every day. Every time I drive here to church, I lose it. Because I get angry without cause. So we fallen, see, see what they do? They lower the standard. They lower the standard and they say they're keeping the standard. But what does James say about that? If you keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, you're guilty of the entire law. If you break any law, you've fallen from, from, from the law, but you haven't fallen from grace if you're still in Christ. Look, the blood of Christ cleanses me from all unrighteousness. So if I stay in Christ, I don't have to worry about keeping the law. And we're going to look in, in the future chapters here, we're going to be looking at resting in Christ and what it really means to rest in Christ. I rest in Christ for my sanctification. I rest in Christ for my salvation. I rest in Christ for my glorification. He does it all. And if I'm not doing so well in this life, and I'm, you know, maybe I'm not as good as I should be, that's his problem. He's the one who's going to make me better in the end. I don't make myself better. You, here's the part that really bothers me, and watch this, watch this scenario real carefully. Here's what the Armenian would say. Let's say somebody falls into drugs. They're, they've been going to church. They fall into drugs. They end up in jail. They curse their mom and dad out. They curse their brothers out. They walk away from the church. They don't want anything to do with God. What would they say? They've lost their salvation. They had it. They, came, they were coming to church. They believed in Christ, and now they've lost it. But here's the problem with that. They come back and they quit. They go to rehab and they quit doing drugs. They come back and give mommy and daddy a big hug. They love their brother. They love going to church again. And now they've got their salvation back. Whoa. You understand the problem with that? What are they saying? Salvation is by works. In other words, they worked their way. They got themselves cleaned up and they worked their way back to the church where they're saved. No, you're not, you don't ever do that. Friends, we are washed in the blood and we are perfected forever if we're Jesus Christ. We don't get any better. We don't get any worse when we fall. We're perfected forever. He loves us as much when we're doing good as he does when he we're doing bad. Let me tell you the second reason. We're going to touch on this a lot more here soon, and that's, if you don't believe in eternal security, it's almost impossible for you to ever rest. For you to ever rest in Jesus Christ. Any of you that have tried to live under this thing, you can lose your salvation. It's almost impossible for you to rest. And we're going to see these warnings about not entering the rest of Jesus Christ. What happened to the Israelites who didn't enter the rest of God? They wandered in the wilderness and died in the wilderness. They never made it into the promised land. And if you can somehow rest and think you can lose your salvation, good luck. But if you don't enter that rest to where you're fully trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ and rejoicing in the end in your hope, then you're not saved. You're not saved. The warnings against, against believing somehow that you can keep your salvation, that's the warning that he gives in these next few chapters we're going to look at. Somehow that you can do it without God. You can't do it without God. 
We're to rest in him once and for all or we die in the wilderness forever. I love the illustration that Harry Einside uses for eternal security. He says salvation is grace. Salvation by grace is like Noah in his ark, the ark representing Jesus Christ. Noah's in his ark, and he invites the pagan to come into his ark and rest in his ark during the storm, just like they rested. The Armenian view would be like, this is what Ironside says, offering a person a peg outside the ark. And all you got to do is hang on for dear life through the storm. And it's de- your salvation would depend upon what? You hanging on for dear life. You let go and you're lost. Well, could you hold on for 120 days for 10 months? Could you hold on for for? Four months or ten, I think it was 40 days, and then on the 11th month or something like they finally came out of the ark. Could anybody hold on that long? Nobody can hold on that long. And let me ask you this. Let's say John held, we use John today. He held on on that peg the whole time. If you went out there with your little iPhone and took a picture of John, what would he look like? <laughs> would he be smiling and rejoicing? Hallelujah, what a ride. <laughs> I don't think so. He would have the living heck beat out of him. You know what else is beautiful about that story? When the storm was over, Moses let a black raven loose from the ark. And the black raven went and saw all the dead things in the world and he loved it. And he didn't come back to the ark. But the white dove left the ark, saw all that dead stuff, and didn't like it. And the white dove came back with an olive branch in its beak. Speaking of life, loving life, and not death. Only those who are in the ark are going to make it to the end. And nobody in the ark ever gets lost. How can I be one of his? How can I do that? All you got to do is choose him. You choose him and trust him. And you know what you're going to find out? You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And you were chosen to finish the race. Because Christianity is not for quitters. He's not going to let you quit. Let me ask you again. Is perseverance a comforting thought? Or is it a scary thought?
Man, when I'm resting in the Lord, it's the most comforting thing in the world to know that He's going to, He is able to give me the strength to persevere to the very end. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and how we can rejoice that your work on the cross, you, you cried out, it is finished, Lord. You did all you could do. You paid for every single sin we've ever committed or ever will commit. Lord, if we're in your ark, if we're in you, we've been perfected forever. We're going to endure to the end in our hope with confidence and rejoicing. We thank you for that in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.